Hi, I'm Dan Pramack, and welcome to Axios Recap, presented by Facebook. Today is Wednesday, December 17th. Weekly jobless claims are up, snow is coming down outside the home podcast studio, and we're focused on Bitcoin mania. Bitcoin yesterday topped $20,000 for the first time ever, and then it just kept going. At the time of this taping, it's at over $23,600 per coin, which means it's up 25% in just the last week and more than 200% for the year. Why does it matter? Well, that depends on who you are and who you ask. If you're someone who holds Bitcoin, has it in their account somewhere, or even just a bit of Bitcoin, you're sitting on a pretty big paper return. If you're one of those Bitcoin evangelists or someone who bought in years ago, you've got the return plus a huge amount of I told you so validation. More broadly speaking, though, there's an argument that this price surge moves Bitcoin a bit more toward becoming a global reserve currency or a currency that the world's central banks hold. Right now, that's the U.S. dollar. And Bitcoin, for sure, is a long ways away from that in terms of scale and doesn't have anywhere near the widespread acceptance of something like the U.S. dollar or even really the Canadian dollar. But it may be getting closer based on how many traditional Wall Street money managers have begun buying in. One even just put a price target of $400,000 per coin. And again, all these traditional money managers buying Bitcoin is one of the reasons the price keeps going up. So we want to dig into what's behind this big price surge and if Bitcoin will ever become a real currency, you know, something we can use to buy and sell things rather than just an investor commodity. That conversation with Bitcoin investor and podcast host Anthony Pompliano in 15 seconds. But first, this. We're joined now by Anthony Pompliano, a partner and co-founder of Morgan Creek Digital Assets and host of the Pomp Podcast. So Pomp, let's start here. Bitcoin yesterday goes above 20,000. And as of the last check, it was well, well above that 22, 23,000. In general, did that 20,000 mark, was that important for the market symbolically, mentally? Basically, did it matter? Yeah, I think that any round number, uh, especially one that was the previous all-time high, is a psychological you know, number in general. Second, I think that there was, if you look in the order books, a lot of sell pressure there. And so kind of getting through that was a kind of momentous occasion. But really, this is a story not so much of what's transpiring over the last couple of weeks. I think it's a much larger macro story. Maybe we'll get into that. But 20,000 definitely matters. And you saw that once we kind of went through 20,000, uh, it's now sitting over $23,000. And I think it's got uh, you know, room to run over the next 12 months or so. You know, we saw, I think back in 2017, it nearly hit 20,000. And then it completely collapsed down to four. Why should people not expect that to repeat itself? Or should they? One of the interesting things about Bitcoin is market prices are determined by supply and demand, and Bitcoin's supply is programmatic. So we know with 100% certainty what the supply schedule looks like. What we have to model out is demand. And what we've seen happen multiple times uh, in the past is demand basically comes in as price rises. And just like a mobile app would run a marketing campaign, a bunch of people would come in and use it, and then you'd get some level of churn, right? And so what has happened with Bitcoin is there's been about 80% churn, about an 80% drawdown. You get kind of a new higher low, and then you basically start the whole cycle all over again. So what we saw was in 2017, we hit almost 20,000, we crashed up to about $3,200, and then we started a new cycle. I think that cycle really is just kind of starting right now. And then we will get another really, really nasty drawdown in the future. Again, you know, 70, 80%. But I don't think that that's going to happen in the next 12 months. There's an argument that suggests that one of the reasons you've seen this price appreciation this year 
has been that a lot of quote traditional asset managers, you know, not Silicon Valley people, not Reddit users, but you know, kind of traditional Wall Street types have been getting in. And then once one does, everybody else feels they have to follow suit because, well, because they're sheep. Accurate understanding of what's happened this year? Let's go back to March um, around, I think, the 12th. I wrote this piece and everyone was freaking out because every asset was selling off, not just Bitcoin, gold, stocks, everything. And we basically saw a liquidity crisis playing out. In that moment, all correlations go towards one and asset prices fall. That historically told us that government was going to step in with some sort of quantitative easing or monetary policy, you know, kind of injection of liquidity. They did that. And so what we saw was basically as that price fell, we can sold the strong hands, government steps in. People run from traditional assets to inflation hedge assets. So gold and Bitcoin should do well there. Not only have they done well, but the two other components is one, there was the habit. So right when everyone was running for inflation hedge assets in May 2020, we got a supply shock, meaning that 50% of the daily incoming supply basically went away. You could think of in the gold world as if 50% of gold miners shut off right when everyone wanted gold, right? So it kind of provides this tailwind to price. The second thing is that many people will look at the circulating supply of Bitcoin and say, oh, there's 18.5 million circulating. But over 60% of Bitcoin hasn't moved in the last 12 months, including with all the volatility. And so the actual kind of addressable circulating supply is less than 10 million Bitcoin. And now what you have is you've got retail investors who want to buy Bitcoin, but you also have these large institutions that are coming in with hundreds of millions of dollars, if not billions of dollars. And so you just have a lot of money, a lot of demand that is trying to buy a very, very scarce asset that just got scarcer in the last you know, kind of eight, nine months. And so I think that's what's really driven this massive price increase. But again, I think we're just starting to see the demand, right? I mean, you have the CIO of Guggenheim on television calling for $400,000 price points. If they're thinking that way now, wait till this thing is at 30, 35, $50,000. I think you're only going to see an acceleration of that demand. Use the term volatility, but isn't that the fundamental flaw of Bitcoin right now? I mean, as a real currency, it remains kind of useless. You wouldn't say use a $20 bill to buy something if you thought it might be worth $40 in a couple of weeks. Definitely a, a uh, currency is used as a medium of exchange and money is used as a medium of exchange and as a store of value. And so if you look at Bitcoin, Bitcoin's been one of the best stores of value over the last 10 years, right? I mean, it's the best performing asset, yada, 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 whatever. In terms of a medium of exchange, what you're seeing is volatility actually has gone down, right? It continues to dampen. But what you're also watching is this price discovery. And so when you have a market cap that is 100, 150, 200 billion dollars, it's just not that big. And a simple injection of, uh, you know, let's say 100 million dollars, 500 million dollars can really move that market in either direction. If that's the case, outside of as basically an investment commodity, what's the point of Bitcoin? Bitcoin's going to be the next global reserve currency, like full stop. It, it's a foregone conclusion in my mind at this point, because not only are you getting the buy-in from retail investors, are you seeing institutional investors adopted? You're also seeing public companies start to adopt it as a treasury asset. And there's also on top of that central banks that are starting to have that conversation as well. And so this is the natural evolution or adoption of a currency, right? Is you start with some group of people who begins to believe that this is a uh, a medium of exchange or a store of value. We've seen that there's literally 100 million people around the world that hold Bitcoin. If it was a stock, it would be the most popular stock on the stock market. And now what you're starting to see is that is kind of making its way up the food chain. You're getting the corporations, you're getting the large asset managers and central banks, right? I mean, we literally have congressmen who are saying short the dollar and hold Bitcoin. Well, we have congressmen saying lots of things right now, Anthony. You realize that, like, yeah, to be fair. Very true. You think it's going to become kind of the global currency and this is kind of the, the evolution. That's how we get there. At what point do we get there? Because you can't have it be a global reserve currency 
if it continues having these large price fluctuations in either direction. I mean, it really has to be not completely stable, but pretty damn close. Completely agree with that. And so if you look today, it's about a $420 billion asset, give or take. And I think that by the end of the 2020s, it'll surpass gold's market cap. Gold's about eight, nine trillion dollars. I think there will be less volatility when we're at that point. But if you think of structurally how global reserve currencies work or kind of economic currencies, every economy has a currency. So if you go around the world, traditionally, we've organized those economies by geography. Each geography has a government. That government has created a currency. And so what we've not had a currency for is the internet economy. There is a new economy, which is this digital economy. It does not have a native currency. I think Bitcoin is that first currency. It's been adopted by the internet and it will become that global reserve currency only because you're going to get the digitization of all these economies and everyone's going to kind of move on to the internet. Now, to your point about volatility, you're not going to have something that is stable when it's only $420 billion market cap. I mean, that's like doesn't even matter in the global financial system, right? We're talking about money supplies and real estate and all these other asset classes that are measured in trillions, tens of trillions, hundreds of trillions of dollars. And so I do think that we will see a massive adoption and that market cap is kind of the best uh, metric to watch. But when we start to get into the high single digits of trillions of dollars and into tens of trillions of dollars in market cap, that's where I think you'll really start to see a noticeable difference in the volatility. It's just going to take time to get there. It's not going to happen. We're not going to have an $8 trillion asset by next year. I do think that this is kind of a multi-year thing that to play out, but I don't also think that we end next year at a $420 billion market cap either, right? I think it's something much higher than where we are today. Anthony Papliano, thank you so much for joining us. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Welcome back. What we're watching today is Robinhood, the popular stock trading app that's now the subject of two major lawsuits. The first came yesterday from officials in Massachusetts who accused Robinhood of predatory marketing practices basically manipulating unsophisticated investors with gamification strategies. The second came this morning from the SEC, alleging that Robinhood misled its users by not disclosing fees it paid to electronic trading firms, thus effectively increasing the cost of their trades. Now, Robinhood has settled the SEC charges for $65 million without admitting guilt and says it plans to fight the Massachusetts claims. Today, we're also watching initial weekly jobless claims, which rose to 885,000. That's higher than last week's number and also higher than economist expectations and may be yet another small shove for those elected officials on the fence about passing new economic stimulus this week. And finally, we're watching snowplows or are trying to. I'm taping this episode from my home in Massachusetts, where snow's been falling for the past 14 straight hours but where there's a shortage of snowplow drivers because of COVID-19. Apparently, about 10% of state and local crews and contractors are unavailable, either because they tested positive or because they're under quarantine. The result? Some major roadways have just one lane plowed. And we're done. Big thanks for listening. And to my producers, Tim Shovers and Naomi Shaven, have a great national maple syrup day. And we'll be back tomorrow with another Axios Recap.